All right, where are all the uh, where are all the kids at? And you guys raise your raise your hands up. All right. All right. Uh, first, I need your guys' help identifying the people in this picture right here. I know it's kind of hard to see. Who, who we got? Superman. Superman. Who else? Just just shout them out. Who else? The Flash. The Flash. Batman. The Justice League. All right, hang on, hang on, hang on. So, yeah, you, you guys are absolutely right. Individually, that's who these people are. Superman, Wonder Woman, The Flash, Batman, uh, some other people only nerds know about, Green Lantern. Uh, but the group as a whole is what, Drew? The Justice League. All right, why are these people called the Justice League? What do you think, Landon? They do justice. What's justice? Isn't that like a store at the mall? What's what's justice, Ailey? Being free or something. Yeah. What else? What else, Drew? Payback for doing something that you should not have done. What else? What do the rest of you guys think? Anybody on this side? Justice is something you do to bad guys? What do you think, Noah? Revenge in the best way possible. I believe that is served cold, by the way. Um, yeah, you guys are, are right. Uh, like one big part of justice is, is negative. It's punishing bad people when they do bad things. But there's also a positive, a good side to justice. And the reason why I bring this up is because these guys only do one kind of justice, right? They punish the bad guys. Uh, but God is a God, one thing we're going to talk about today is that he is a God of justice. He's a God of righteousness. And that means he punishes people that do bad things. He punishes us for our sin. But it also means that he does good things, like Zaylee talked about. He frees people uh, who don't have freedom. He gives people what they deserve in a good way. As people who are created in his image, God also does good things for us. He cares for us. He sends things like, like rain so that crops can grow, so we can have food to eat. He gives us air to breathe. He gives us a creation to live in. So God's justice doesn't just mean that he punishes bad guys. It also means that he cares for us as his children, which is a good thing, right? We, we want God to care for us as a, as a kind and loving father. And so as we talk about justice today, kids, I would encourage you to, to try to try to pay attention, try to listen, go home and ask your parents uh, questions about what justice is and what it looks like, not just for superheroes to do justice, but what it looks like for us to be people who are doing justice and bringing justice in the world around us, because there are lots of places and lots of opportunities for us to do that. And so, so talk to your parents about that and ask them about that. Um, and let's, let's pray together this morning before we, we dig into the word together. God, we thank you that you are just and right. Um, that you are the final standard for what, what is right. 
And we also thank you that you are good all the time. That uh, in your goodness, you show mercy and show grace and have patience with, with those of us who only deserve your just and righteous punishment. God, we pray today that as we look at your word um, to, to, to learn more about you, that, that you would send your spirit to do two things in us, that, that we would have a renewed sense of awe at the God that you are, and that we would praise and worship you rightly because of who you are and because of what you've done for us. And that as we learn more about who you are, um, that you would help us to be faithful and obedient imitators of you as your beloved children. Pray that you would do that in us today. Jesus, in your name we pray. Amen. So today we're continuing our series and uh, talking about the doctrine of God and talking about his attributes. And his attributes, just to refresh your memory, are uh, aspects of God's being or character, who, who he is, uh, that he's revealed to be true about himself. And so we've talked about uh, God's spirituality. We've talked about his knowledge. We've talked about last week kind of these so a few attributes of his character. Today we're kind of continuing that. We're talking about more aspects of his character that he has revealed to be true about himself in his word. Specifically, we're talking about his, his goodness, his mercy, grace, and patience, and then his righteousness and justice today. And, and as we talked about last week, when we start to think about God's attributes, especially when we start to think about God's character attributes, and we throw out things like wrath, and justice, and then we throw out things on the other side like love and grace, we might begin to think that these things are kind of in conflict with each other within God, but that is that is not true. God is a unified being, and because of that, he is perfectly all that he is all the time, and so he is perfectly loving and perfectly wrathful. He is perfectly just and perfectly gracious. And one thing we're going to get to say, see today in his word is how he is a God who is both gracious to us and also a God who is perfectly just in giving us grace. Um, and so I'm, I'm excited to, to dig into that with you this morning. And just like we've done every other week, what we're going to do is I'm going to throw out a definition for the attribute that we're talking about. Then we're going to walk through Scripture and see where we see it in God's Word. And then we're going to come back and we're going to talk about how it's communicable. And communicable means that these are God's attributes that we share in or participate in. And uh, last week we talked about Ephesians 5.1 where, where Paul says, Therefore, as beloved children, be imitators of God. Like we're called as his children, as those he's adopted into his family, to imitate him. And so the reason why we're talking about his attributes is so that we can know more about who he is, so that we can be people who imitate who he is, instead of imitating something else or someone else. We want to imitate God. And so as we talk about his attributes, it's not just so that we can learn more. It's not just so we can you know, do some academic exercise together. It's so that we can be people who both worship God for who he is and also imitate him in front of the watching world around us. So the first one we're talking about today is his goodness. His goodness is that God is the final standard of good and all that he is and all that he does is worthy of approval. That's what it means to say that God is good. He has goodness. He is good. What he does is good. And he is the final standard 
of it. But when we, when we talk about this, we, we need to first kind of define what it means to, to be good. What do we mean by the word good? Well, good is an, an adjective. It describes things. So this could be a, a good music stand. This could be a good book or, or, or the good book. But it's a word that describes other things. And when we describe things as good, what we're really saying is that these things are worthy of approval. So, so parents, in your home, you have labeled some things, some activities, some behaviors as good behaviors. And what you mean is that those things, those, you know, TV shows, those books, those behaviors that your kids have are worthy of your approval. You have said these things are okay to do. They're, they're good. And bad things are things that you haven't approved. That you've told your kids, don't do these things. Don't watch these shows because that's a bad show. It's not approved by mom and dad. Uh, when we talk about God being good, then we need to ask the question, well, who is the one approving it? And, and the answer is God himself. God is the one who's approving himself as good. It's worthy of his approval. That's why it's good. And the reason why that matters is because sometimes I think we, we, we mistakenly think that God being good means that there's some sort of like objective standard out there of what good is. And God is good when he's, when he's like this kind of nebulous, vague standard of goodness. The problem with that is that if God is submitting to something that's not himself, then he's not God anymore. This, this other thing is God. This, this nebulous, vague standard of goodness is over him. And so that's not the case. That's not what we see in Scripture. What we see in Scripture is that God himself is the final standard of good. And it's good because it's who he is. It's what he does. It's what he approves of. So good, the best way for us to define good is to say good is what God says is approved. It's, it's who he is. It's what he does. And so we see this in his word. Uh, in Matthew or Mark 10, 17 and 18, this guy comes to question Jesus, and this is what happens. Mark tells us, and as he was setting out on his journey, a man rose up or, or ran up and knelt before him and asked him, He's asking Jesus, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. So Jesus, in answering this guy's question, uh, and there's more to the story, but here he's just communicating some truth about God. No one, nothing else, no one other than God is good. God is the only one who is good. And he's, I mean, really what's happening here is Jesus is just kind of busting this guy's chops because he is God. And so he kind of criticizes him for calling him good, but then he tells him that he is good. Uh, but he doesn't have eyes to see that and understand this. But the point here for us is that he's saying no one is good except for God alone. Psalm 119.68, the psalmist says, you are good and do good. Teach me your statutes. The psalmist is recognizing that both God himself in his being is good. He's worthy of his own approval. And the things that he does are worthy of his approval. He is good. And then at least 15 other times in the psalms, the psalmist uh, reiterate the fact that God is good and what he does is good. And because of that, he is worthy of our praise and our worship. Um, 
We also see the same thing in the creation account in Genesis 1 and 2, right? God makes something, and then he says, it's good. It's good because he made it. He's identifying his creation as something that is good. Because he's done it, because he's made it, it is a good thing. So throughout Scripture, what we're seeing is that God is good, what he does is good, and because he is the one who approves it, he's defining what goodness is in his creation. His word also tells us that he's the source of what is good in this world. So James 1.17, we've talked about this verse a lot as we've gone through God's attributes because in it there's a whole lot of different truths about who God is. He says, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. So Every good gift, anything good that you have in your life is from God. He is the source of that good. You didn't create it for yourself. Someone else didn't give it to you. It is from him. Acts 14.17 says, Yet he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. One of the ways God shows his goodness to the world is by sending rain and causing crops to grow so that we have food to eat and so that we can survive in his creation. He is good and he shows his goodness by doing good things in his creation. And and, and in this way, God is good to everyone, right? Last night, it rained in the city of Hannibal and it rained on everyone's house, right? It's not like we went outside this morning and like the good people's houses were wet and the bad people's houses were dry. He poured out, literally, goodness on his creation. He sent the rains and everyone in his creation benefited from that. Um, But he also shows his goodness to his children in some particular ways that he doesn't show his goodness to everyone. So Romans 8.28 says, And we know that for those who love God, all things working together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. What Paul is saying there in Romans 8 is that for specific people, for those who love God, those called according to his purpose. God does good, works good in their lives in a way that he doesn't for those who are not called according to his purpose, for those who do not love him. So he's showing goodness to his whole creation in some ways, but in other ways he's showing particular goodness to particular people. Um, the same thing we see in Matthew seven eleven. Jesus says, If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give good things to those who ask him? So in Matthew 7, there's a couple more things that restrict who God shows goodness to. Number one, you need to be one of his children. You need to be adopted into his family for him to show you that kind of goodness. And the second thing you need to do is you need to ask him. A requirement for him giving you a good gift is to ask him for a good gift. And he's telling us that if we, who are evil, wicked, broken people, know how to give good things to our children, how much more will our Father give good things to us when we ask? So God is good. All that he does is good. He is the final standard of what is worthy of approval. So how is this communicable? How do we participate in this? Well, Ephesians 5.1, we, we imitate God. We should strive to be people who both are good and who do good. We don't become the final standard of what is good. That's God. But we do things that are worthy of his approval. And we do good to others. Galatians 6.10 says, So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to 
everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. This verse is a verse that's, that's very, very easy for us to apply, right? As we have opportunity, anytime you get a chance, let us do good. So anytime you have a chance, do good. Who do we do good to? Everyone. And bonus, if they're a Christian. Uh, but it doesn't say don't do good to people that aren't. It says especially if they are of the household of faith, if they're a member of your faith community. And so this is something that we know we should do. Anytime we have an opportunity, we should do good to anyone. So if you want to know, should I do good in this situation, ask yourself, is this a person? And do I have an opportunity to? Which if you're asking the question, you have an opportunity to. And as long as you're not crazy, you know whether or not they're a person. So we should be people who do good way more often than we do. And the reason why we don't is because we're selfish and lazy. And because we don't understand enough about how much God has done good to us. Because if we do, it would push us out of our laziness. It would push us out of our selfishness. And we would know that everything we have, the fact that we have an opportunity to do good to them is because he has done good to us. And the good that we're doing is just passing on every good and perfect gift that he's given to us. There is not any good reason not to do good. There's not. So as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, especially those who are of the household of faith. Because God is good and we are called to imitate him. The next attributes we're going to talk about are three uh, important aspects of God's goodness. God is good, and then within his word we see kind of three uh, particular aspects of his goodness, and those are mercy, grace, and patience. But what, what I don't want to communicate is that there's some sort of hierarchy where, where God has his goodness, and then kind of under that are mercy and grace and patience. That, that's not the way it works. In fact, the reason why we're, we're talking about his mercy and his grace and his patience as particular aspects of his goodness is because they are so very significant in Scripture. If they weren't, we wouldn't need to focus on them directly. But because he shows his mercy so much and because he shows his grace so much and because he shows patience so much in his word, they're uh, things that we consider as particular parts of his goodness. And so first is his mercy. His mercy is his goodness towards those who are helpless and in distress. So in Exodus 34, 6, where God is declaring his name to Moses, he talks about the fact that he is a merciful God. He says, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful, gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. So there we see kind of all three aspects of his goodness that we're going to talk about side by side. He is merciful, he is gracious, he is slow to anger, also patient, and he abounds in steadfast love. Again, patient is implied in there. Uh, and in God's word, mercy and grace often go hand in hand. 
Uh, and because of that, we sometimes can kind of smash them together in our minds as if they're the same thing. To say that, like, God is gracious and God is merciful. Well, you're really saying the same thing, but you're not saying the same thing. Because his mercy is his goodness towards those who are helpless and in distress. So, for example, in Matthew 9, 27, it says, And Jesus passed on from there. Uh, two blind men followed him, crying aloud, Have mercy on us, son of David. Uh, when people cry out for mercy, what they're doing is they're saying, Hey, I'm in distress. I need help. I'm suffering. Would you, who are in a position to help me, help me because I'm in distress, because I'm in need of help? And so mercy is calling out for someone to help you because you recognize your own helplessness. These guys can't do anything for themselves to get their sight back. And so they're asking someone who they believe can help them to do that, to have mercy on them and act on their behalf. And that's exactly what happens in the rest of that story. Uh, Paul does a similar thing at the beginning of 2 Corinthians. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Paul is specifically mentioning mercy here because he's writing to a group of people that are suffering affliction. He's saying you are in a distressful state. Because of that, I'm going to remind you that God is merciful and that he has given comfort to you and will continue to give comfort to you. And because he's shown you mercy and given you comfort, then you will be able to show mercy and give comfort to other people. He's highlighting the fact that God helps those who are in distress and are, who are helpless. We also see his mercy in salvation. First Peter 1 Peter 1.3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. This is just the beginning of a long sentence where Peter unpacks the realities of our salvation. But here, right at the beginning, he's pointing out the role of God's mercy in our salvation. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again. It's not the same thing as grace. God's mercy is him looking at us in our helpless and distressed state and acting on our behalf so that he can do something for us that we can't do for ourselves. And so you've probably heard people say, God helps those who help themselves. That's a lie. God helps those who can't help themselves. That's what he does. Like we, we can't do anything to cause ourselves to be born again. And so God, according to his great mercy, sees that we can't do anything on our own and shows us mercy and causes us to be born again. He does for us what we can't do for ourselves. And that's how he shows his goodness towards us as mercy. So how is mercy communicable? Well, Luke 6.36 says, Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. Just like what Paul says in Ephesians 5, 1, only it's specific to mercy. He's saying, God has shown you mercy, so you should be people who imitate him by showing mercy to other people. We should see people who are in distress, see people who need help, and be those who do good to them when we have an opportunity to. We should be Merciful, And like Paul communicates in 2 Corinthians, because he's shown us mercy, 
we should be able to show mercy to others because he has comforted us in our suffering, in our distress, in our helplessness. We should be the ones that do that for other people. Not so that people can look at us and say, oh my goodness, you know, those, those people from BC, they're, they're so merciful. But so that they can look at us and we can say, yeah, the only reason we're like this is because of what God has done for us. He is the one who's showing you mercy, not us. His grace is his goodness towards those who deserve only punishment. It's his goodness towards those who only deserve punishment. So the first question we should ask ourselves about this definition is, is who are those who deserve only punishment? Who, who fits in that group? Who are we talking about here? To help us answer that question is Paul in Romans 3. Romans 3.23, he says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And we can add on the first half of Romans 6.23, which says the wages of sin is death. Wages are what you deserve. You work a job, you deserve to get paid for the job. It's, it's what you're supposed to receive for doing it. And Paul is saying in Romans 6 that what we should receive for sinning is death. So, so what do we deserve for sin? Death. And, and who has sinned? Everyone. So, back to our definition, who are those who only deserve punishment? Everybody. And what's the punishment we deserve? Death. So the question that we need to ask now is why are we alive? Why are we all here this morning and I'm, I'm talking and you're hopefully listening uh, and, and we can have this conversation. I can ask these questions. You can give answers. If, if what we deserve is death and we're not dead, then I think that maybe God has shown us grace. Right? Because his grace is his goodness towards those who only deserve punishment, and we are those who only deserve punishment. The punishment we deserve is death. So if he hasn't given that to us, it's because he is gracious, because he is merciful. He's shown us grace. And so uh, there are two kinds of grace. There is his common grace and his saving grace. His common grace is grace that he shows to all people, that he gives to all people. That's his common grace. It's common. It's, it's, it's everywhere. It's out there. Uh, and so uh, if we were to ask, what is, what is an aspect of his, his common grace or what's something that he gives us? Um, well, I mean, the, the short answer is, is anything you get that's better than death. Bunions on your feet are common grace. Because you should be dead. A broken leg is common grace because you should be dead. You shouldn't be alive to be able to break your leg. Him giving rain to his creation, even when it causes your power to go out and you got to reset all your clocks, is him giving you something you don't deserve because what you deserve is death. And that's not fun to think about because we like to think of ourselves as basically good people who are worthy of more things than just punishment. But according to God's word, that's not who we are. So his common grace is anything that's better than death that he gives to us. We talked about James 1.17 earlier. Every good and perfect gift comes from the Father. That's common grace. We talked about Acts 17.14 where he uh, 14, 17, where he causes the rains to fall and crops to grow. The fact that we have food to eat is common grace. It's things that he gives to everyone in his creation. Um, his saving grace, on the other hand, is God's gracious gift of salvation 
to specific particular people. Not everyone benefits from his saving grace because not everyone follows Christ, right? We all have people in our lives who have not trusted in Christ for salvation. God gives them his common grace, but he hasn't yet given them his saving grace. Um, Go back to Romans 3 to see this. Paul says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. What Paul is telling us here, in addition to what we talked about last week about his wrath, is that we're justified by his grace and we receive it by faith. He says it's a gift. It's it's freely given and it's freely received. When I say that his grace is freely given, what I mean is that God was under no obligation whatsoever to show us grace. He didn't have to. He wasn't required to. He showed us grace because that's what pleased him to do. That's what he decided to do, and so that's what he did. It's His grace is freely given as a gift, and it's also freely received. We don't do anything to earn it. We don't do anything to get it. We don't pay God back. It's it's freely given and it's freely received because that's what grace is. Paul explains this in Romans 11. Here he's, he's talking about election, but he also tells us about grace. He says, but if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. If we could possibly do anything to deserve his grace, then it's not grace anymore. Because his grace is what he gives to people who deserve only punishment, and that's us. So we, we, we can't earn it, but even if we could, it wouldn't be grace anymore. The only appropriate response for us to his grace is to receive it by faith. That's all that we can do, because his grace is unmerited and unearned. I want to read you this, this quote from, from Wayne Grudem about faith. He says, faith is the one human attitude that is the opposite of depending on oneself. For it involves trust in or dependence upon another. Thus, it is devoid of self-reliance or attempts to gain righteousness by human effort. If God's favor is to come to us apart from our own merit, then it must come when we depend not on our own merit, but on the merits of another. And that is precisely when we have faith. We have faith when we say, I'm not depending on myself. I'm depending on what Christ has done for me. That's where my righteousness comes from. That's where my salvation comes from. That's what provides me with the opportunity to have grace and have salvation. It has nothing to do with me. Faith is when we trust in him and not in ourselves. God's patience is his goodness towards us in withholding punishment uh, that our sins deserve for a period of time. Right, so we just talked about grace. We talked about the punishment that we deserve is death. And we talked about how we're all alive. That's because God is patient. We're, we're, we're dying, but we're not dead. His patience is him withholding punishment that we deserve so that we have the opportunity to benefit from his grace. Second Peter 3.9 shows this. It says, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. 
The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise. So when we think about God's promises in Scripture, we normally think about the positive things. One day Christ is going to return. He's going to bring his kingdom in his fullness. He's going to fix everything that's broken about this world. He's finally going to make it all right. And we're waiting for that. We're hoping in that. We're longing for that to come because that's when this world and us are going to be finally the way we're supposed to be. And so as we wait for that, as we hope in that, we probably, hopefully, sometimes think, what are you waiting for? Make this happen now so that I don't have to suffer anymore, so I don't have to experience pain anymore, so that no one has to experience pain anymore. And in Second Peter, he's coming along and he's telling us that this is why. This is why he's waiting. And as we think about that, we need to remember that his promises aren't just promising good things. Because when that happens, he's also going to judge sin as it deserves to be judged. And it's going to be condemned, either in hell or on the cross. And so Second Peter is telling us that God is being patient so that people have the opportunity to repent. He's patient. He not only gives the people we love and care about who haven't trusted in Christ the opportunity to repent, but he gives us time to be people in their lives who share the gospel with them so they can know about this grace that they can freely receive as a gift. And so when we think about his patience and when we think about how the fact that it's it's communicable to us, I think that we should remember that he's giving us an opportunity to call people to repentance. We need to share the good news of God's patience with people. And to also share with them the reality that he's going to keep his promise. Both in a good way and in a bad way. The other thing that I thought about this week, as I was thinking about his patience, was that that for, for me at least, and I would imagine for, for a lot of you, that a, a whole lot of our lives is about being patient. And I'm a particularly impatient person. And when you have lots of small children, you get a whole lot of opportunities to be patient. And uh, as I was thinking about it this week, I realized that, that one one day, we won't have to be patient anymore. Like, like one day we're not going to have to bear with the failings of the week because there's not going to be any week. One day we're not going to, you know, have to endure alongside people and persevere alongside people. One day we're not going to have to endure and persevere with ourselves. Like we won't have to be patient with others and we won't have to be patient with ourselves. We will be who we're supposed to be and so will everyone else. And so I think we we, sh- we should be patient people, but there should also be, I think, just a hint of impatience as we're longing for God to keep his promise. Uh, but, but still recognizing that it's so that people, including us, have the opportunity to repent. The last attribute we're talking about today is his righteousness and his justice. Definition here is that God always does what is right, and is the final standard of justice. And so the first thing I want to address is how these are one attribute when there's two words separated by the word and. Um, and that is that uh, in, in English, we have a couple groups of words. We've got like just, 
justify justice. And we also have like righteousness, right, righteous, upright. So there's what seems like two different groups of words. But the reality is that in both Hebrew, the Old Testament, and Greek, the New Testament, all of those words are one word group. Um, so, so behind both of these things, which seem like they're different things to us, there's, there's one word. And so this is one attribute that God has that kind of expresses itself in a, in a couple different ways. Um, and I think that's important for us to recognize because these words are used in Scripture. And we need to know that they're kind of the same word, even though they're used uh, differently at different times. So we'll see this in, in Scripture, so it'll hopefully make more sense. First place is Deuteronomy 32.4. The rock, his work is perfect, for all his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. Um, so right there at the end, it seems like he's saying different things, but really he's just reiterating the same thing. God is a God of justice. Uh, all he does is just, and he himself is just and upright. He does what is right, and he's the final standard of justice. Isaiah 45, 19, God says, I declare what is right. There's not someone or something else who decides what right and wrong is or what is just and unjust. God himself is the one who declares that. And, and, and right here, it doesn't mean correct. It means just. Psalm 19.8 says, the precepts of the Lord are right. Um, and so when we are talking about rightness and justice, we need to remember, like we talked about earlier in the kids' sermon, that justice isn't just a negative thing. It's about giving people what they deserve, either in a bad way, they deserve punishment, or in a good way. And so, uh, for example, if we uh, came across a situation where one person was beating another person, so, for example, like domestic violence, we should, as followers of Christ, step into that situation and bring justice. Cause it to be brought. The person who's doing the beating should get punished. And the person who uh, is being beaten needs to have justice done for them too. They need to be told, hey, you're a human being created in God's image. You do not deserve to be treated like this. And you shouldn't be treated like this. So there's both a negative side of punishing those who do wrong and the positive side of bringing justice to people who need justice brought to them. There should not be starving people in this world. There should not be uh, people in slavery in this world. We should be people who bring justice. And God is going to bring justice in his world, both negatively to punish evil and also positively to, to bring restoration uh, and redemption where it should be brought. And so uh, when we talk about God being a just God, that's what we're talking about. We're not just talking about him punishing people. We're also talking about him giving people what they deserve in a positive way. So God's justice means he gives people what they deserve. But that should cause a problem for us. Because we just talked about grace, right? What, what, what does grace mean? It means he doesn't give us what we deserve. Because we, we all recognize together that what we deserve is death and there are no dead people here. So how can God be just? How can he be a God who gives people what they deserve and also be a God who doesn't give us what we deserve? 
We see this in Romans 3. I'm going to read the whole passage and then we're going to come back and, and focus on some specific parts of it. He says, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So Paul here is is trying to answer that question. He's trying to say, how can God give people what they deserve and not give people what they deserve? How can he be gracious and how can he be just? How can he be the just and the one who justifies? So he starts by saying the righteousness of God. He's, he's talking about this reality that God is just, God is upright. He is the final standard of justice because that's who he is. His, his, his justice, his righteousness, it's been revealed uh, from the very beginning. It's been made known through the law and the prophets. But now, Paul is saying, through the cross, it's been made manifest, it's been revealed to the world in a different way, in a greater way. And notice, at the end of verse 21, uh, there's this this line, this this dash. And, you know, I, I know that you all probably learn or, or love learning about punctuation because you can impress your friends at parties, uh, with your with your knowledge, and so there's this dash, and that that's an M dash, an E M dash, uh, which is kind of like a colon. And what it does is it says, "Hey, what's coming after this is is kind of unpacking and explaining what was just said." Now, obviously, Paul, when he's writing Romans or having someone write Romans in Greek, there's not an M dash there because you know Paul wasn't as cool as we all are and didn't know about it. Uh, but what he does is he phrases what he's saying grammatically in a way that says, hey, what's coming after this is explaining what's before. So he's, he's, he's unpacking in 22 what he said in verse 21. Verse 21, he's talking about the righteousness of God. Then he comes back to that idea. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Um, so there, there's a move from verse 21 where God's righteousness is kind of just explaining who he is and how that's been made manifest through the law and the prophets to now being something that that's for us. It's for us through faith in Jesus Christ. The righteousness of God through faith, so it's something that can come to us through faith uh, for all who believe. So he's he's kind of moving forward in his, his thought. And he's going to keep unpacking this. He says there's no distinction. right? All sin, all have sin and fall short of the glory of God. We're, we're all... Uh, people who deserve his punishment. We deserve death. But even though all have sinned, he says that we can be justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. And don't forget here that the word justified in verse 24 is the same word, righteousness, that's in 21 and 22. So he's, he's talking about the same ideas here. 
He says that we can be justified, even though we have sinned, even though we have fallen short of the glory of God, even though we deserve only punishment. Now there's an opportunity to be justified through the redemption that's in Christ, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. We talked about propitiation last week, about how that means that Jesus bore all of God's wrath against us in our sin until it was done. He bore it all. And so because of that, now there's this opportunity to be justified. And he explains, this was to show God's righteousness uh, because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sin. So God, in in passing over people's sin, uh, doesn't make him unrighteous. We see his righteousness in that sin is punished. It's either punished in hell or it's punished on the cross, which Paul is explaining now how God did that by putting forward Christ as a propitiation. Then he he goes further. It was to show his righteousness at the present time, right right now, uh, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. The cross, Paul is saying, shows how God can be just and can also be the one who justifies, the one who gives us the gracious gift of being able to be justified, to be able to be made right in God's eyes. And he's explaining how God has done that. He didn't fail to punish sin. He punished it in Christ, who God put forward as a propitiation for our sins, to be received by faith. Uh, he explains this in, slight, in a slightly different way in 2 Corinthians 5. This is what he says there. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin. He's talking about Jesus. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Again, righteousness, same word that is used in Romans 3. What Paul is telling us in both of these passages is two very, very, very significant things. The first thing he's telling us is that on the cross, Christ paid the penalty for our sins. He uh, died the death that we deserve. God poured out his justice, his wrath on Christ that was against us for our sins. He died the death that we deserved. That's the first thing. The second thing is that uh, when God justifies us, when he makes us right with him, what he's doing is he's taking Christ's righteousness and giving it to us. He's imputing it to us. He made him Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, so he takes our sin, he gives it to Jesus, Jesus pays the penalty on the cross, and then he says, in him we might become the righteousness of God. We become Christ's righteousness because of what he's done for us. So there's there's two things. There's a removal of our sin, and then there's a giving of righteousness to us. And Paul is saying that is how God can be both just, because he's punished sin, and the one who justifies because he's giving us Christ's righteousness. So it's gracious in that we don't deserve that. But it's just in that he's counting us righteous, not on the basis of unrighteous lives, but on the basis of Christ's righteousness. And that is a good and gracious thing for us. Because if, if both of those things don't happen, number one, God isn't who he says he is in his word. And number two, we're all in trouble. Right? Because even if he takes away our sin, 
which I think sometimes is kind of where we stop in the gospel. Jesus paid the penalty for our sins. We, we get that. We emphasize that. But if that's all that happened, we're still sinners. We're still broken. We're still helpless. We cannot be righteous on our own. So the only way we become righteous is if God takes Jesus' righteousness and counts it for us. Because otherwise, either we are unrighteous or he is unrighteous. Because he can't justify those who aren't righteous. And the way he does that is by counting Christ's righteousness for us. So this is the great exchange that happens in the gospel. He takes our sin and gives us Christ's righteousness. And the way we receive that is by faith. And so how is God's righteousness communicable to us? Trust in Christ, that's how. Because the only way we get any righteousness whatsoever is if we get his righteousness. And so as we take the Lord's Supper today, you know, last week we kind of focused on the fact that, that Jesus paid the penalty for our sins, that he bore God's intense hatred against our sin on the cross. Today, I would encourage you to to think not just about that, but remember that his righteousness has been credited to you. It's been imputed to you so that when God sees you, he sees you as someone who is righteous, even though you're not. And regardless of our our failings, regardless of the ways in which we all fall short. God sees us as someone who hasn't fallen short. He sees us as someone who doesn't deserve only death. He sees us as someone who's his beloved child. And so as you take the Lord's Supper, I would encourage you to think about those things. Think about the fact that that you are righteous in Christ, that your sin's been done away with, uh, and because of that, you can be someone who imitates God. He has made you one of his beloved children. He is just, and he is good, and he is merciful, and he is gracious and patient with us. And the simple fact that we get to be here and be alive and have life is because he is all of those things perfectly. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are just and the one who justifies. Thank you that in in your goodness and in your justice, you made a way for us to be made right, for, for our sin to be punished, and for us to be made righteous in Christ. We pray that that as we remember again what Christ has accomplished for us on the cross. We would remember that that you see us as righteous. That despite our, our failings and our shortcomings, despite our sin, both, both in the past and tomorrow, that you sent Christ as our substitute, both for the payment of our sin and, and also the, the purchasing of our of our life in Christ was to remember that his body has been broken and his blood has been shed for us, both our sin and our righteousness.